One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a T-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your health care. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for the award-winning seating. They always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Hello, I'm Stephen. And I'm Helen. And welcome to the New Statesman Podcast. And it's a US election special. I apologise to those of you who hope that normal service would be resumed, but we think that there are huge implications for the world to Donald Trump's victory, and um, we're going to discuss them a bit more now. And now we're joined by NS contributing editor Laurie Penny. Hello. Hello. Um. Let's go back to, not the start, but let's go back to the conventions, which you covered mm-hmm. for us and for Medium. Um, at that point, how bad did things look? Well, funny you should ask. So I remember being in the hall when Donald Trump accepted the nomination for president, and it was like Nuremberg meets the Eurovision Song Contest. It was utterly mad and the people in front of me were saying how come he doesn't talk about Obama in a bad way Obama's a Muslim you know and it was I mean it was full of people who were so high off that it's no it's not even accurate to say crypto fascism and I came out of there thinking he's gonna do it he's gonna win and for about a couple of hours I was just convinced I was like no no no, this is happening the media don't understand we haven't quite got the energy in the mood and then I was just like no 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 it I'm sure it's going to be fine. I'm sure I'm just overreacting. That was a very scary thing I just saw. Surely not everybody is going to be taken in by this. And then, you know, um, after that, you know, we, the first instinct was correct, it seems like. I think that's a really interesting thing because, and we've been having discussions in the office about this. One of the best things I read in the aftermath of Trump's history was um, Masha Gessen's piece, Five yes. Rules of Living Under an Autocracy. And, you know, she's writing about Putin and saying, well, look, the thing is that everyone kind of starts going, oh, no, that's, you know, as soon as someone is a president, right, then everything they do is presidential by definition. Exactly. And you actually have to kind of remind yourself that it's okay to be outraged. You're not being kind of hysterical. You know, if someone does place huge restrictions on the freedom of the press, that's not, you know, that's, that is, you are allowed to be outraged by that. Because reacting against whatever the political status quo is, is automatically seen as maladaptive, as somehow a sign of mental illness or overreaction, as long as that person is in power and is seen to have got there to some extent legitimately, then you can't, you know, you can't react against that without being considered to have gone too far. And that was, that's the case with any president, any prime minister, um, but, you know, in the Martin Luther King quote that's been going around the internet, it's, he says, you know, it's not um, it's not wrong to fail to adapt to a 
maladjusted society. You know, mm-hmm. you don't want to make yourself adaptable to that thing. And the guessing piece was fantastic as well because she also says, believe him, believe the autocrat, believe that he means what he says. And a lot of what a lot of, you know, particularly white liberals, particularly people who can maybe keep their heads down and it's going to be all right. What we're seeing from those people is, oh, well, maybe it's going to be okay. Maybe he doesn't really mean it. Maybe he's not really going to invite all the white supremacists mm. in. Wait maybe and it's see. Going to be... wait, wait and see. see. And you're like, yeah. what, why would I wait and see? The guy's already appointed Steve Bannon, you know, um, who runs Breitbart, which is the site that, you know, has, mm-hmm. has done a huge amount to poison well, He's put discourse. Chris Kobach in his transition team, yep. a man who's signature political achievement has been reducing the rights of minorities to yes. vote uh, is talking and is talking about a registry for um for muslims i mean it he is kicked out chris christie who for all that i in a way i feel sad about the sort of tragic mm-hmm. shakespearean downfall of chris christie like all he wanted was donald trump to love him and then he got crushed oh. and cut out. but at least that was somebody who was quite close to being a mainstream republican and that also yeah. shows another sorry uh, a, mm. another uh, thing to worry about why was he kicked out he was kicked out because as a federal prosecutor, he put Jared Kushner's uh, father in prison, right? He didn't, you know, haunt this guy. To Jared Kushner, in case for the people who aren't following the internet, so Trump family is married to Ivanka Trump, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. And also on the transition team is Ivanka Trump, is Donald Trump Jr. and Eric Trump, who looks like a vampire. They all look like vampires. This is like the the wrong side of the Twilight universe. One of them is called called Rince Pribus. Goodness sake, that's a fanfic name. Um, if ever I heard one, they they all sound like Death Eaters. Of course, I think it actually is Rince. I, I remember Rince. it rhymes with pints, apparently. Rince Pribus. Uh, yeah, uh, which yeah does. Oh God, it is. Oh my God, everything is so bad. Which you can read. <laughs> yeah, which is an anagram of like Prince Rebus, which is a, a name for a bad vampire, right? Um, <laughs> But yeah, sorry, Stephen. Yeah, you're right. Jared Kushner, who owns the New York Observer, who's who is a very wealthy man in his own right, um, basically seems to have had a kind of purge of of anyone connected to Chris Christie yep. from the transition team. Yeah. Peter Thiel's on the transition team as well. Everyone's favourite, hugely litigious yes. Silicon Valley. He's literally Lex Luthor. Peter Thiel is literally Lex Luthor. He has a he has a secret offshore base. He injects himself with young blood, uh, and everyone's like, "Oh, that's sorry." Cool. Laurie. We can't say that, Laurie. of course. None of I'm these being, things are true. None of these things are true. He's and a I'm kind merely, and generous a kind, man. I mean, he wants I've to live forever him. and is entirely right to... And that's fine, and we're all cool with that. And I, would, I, for one, won't have a word said against the highly litigious Peter Thiel on this podcast. I mean, well. I, I, for one, would quite like to live forever, or at least until I'm old enough to have more grey hairs and I don't have to feel upset about. Um, you know, kind of... How many grey hairs do you have currently that you feel upset about? One. There's I've got there's one um one and I kind of thought, oh, when I get it cut this time over one, maybe it's just, you know, that hair's died. But I, as it's coming back, it is coming back grey. Yeah, fine, you'll be a silver fox. Did It'll you get fine. it this week by any chance? No, I actually got it um during uh, party conference season. Oh uh, fair enough. I haven't actually acquired one now, which is weird because you'd think that uh, at this point my body would go, better go grey some point. Um <laughs> But yeah, this this is a man who is Pursuing revenge against Chris Christie, like and and doing endless tweets about the New York Times yeah. as well. This is the other thing. Donald Trump has done like sad, failing. You know, New York Times publishes lies about me. Like I thought they were supposed to have taken his Twitter account off him, right? And but that those days are gone. Like he's no. now he's free range. 
Yeah, there is no benefit of the doubt that I feel willing to accept to him. I, I I will accept the benefit of the doubt, and that I think he might not be able to accomplish any of his terrible ideas because of sheer incompetence. That's mm-hmm. about as far as I'll go. The federal government does move slowly, although um, it, I, I like the response when Obama says, "Well, you know, the federal government is it's like a it's like an ocean liner; it moves slowly." And the people people on Twitter are like, "Literally, when you think of an ocean liner, what ship do you think of?" And I love that. It's true, the iceberg. Um, but, you know, Stephen, you've been arguing the toss with people on Twitter, a fine sport, about this very subject. Why? What is behind this urge to, to normalise him and to kind of to, to try and treat him like any other president? So I think there are three, uh, three sort of forces. Um, I'm going to go from most to least charitable. The most, and I think this is true for a lot of people, optimism is is a survival technique, right? Mm-hmm. If we weren't optimistic about the lack of pain, we would all be only children, among other things. We would never have left the cave. Uh, yeah, like we, yeah, kind of, it, it, kind of going, maybe it won't be as bad as we all think. Weaponized willful stupidity. Yeah, is, is a vital way than we all survive, right? And I think that is part of a large number of people who are going, oh, you know, maybe it'll be uh, okay, maybe it'll mm-hmm. be fine. To be honest, I would argue that pretty much, and it's not just, uh, you know, Politico, you know, the, the Times' coverage of it has been particularly sort of like, wow, you really are searching for a silver lining very hard here. But anyone uh, on the left who is arguing about who the 2020 candidate should be is being incredibly optimistic about the level of rigging and voter suppression. Mm-hmm. And this is a man who we didn't think would step down last time, yeah, would concede when he didn't run the army, right? Yeah, yeah they, so that's kind of part of it, is optimism. I also don't think, and this is kind of related to that, I think there's also a kind of hipsterism where being, like, cool about stuff is, is seen as cool. Like, actually, because outrage is such a debased currency mm. online, it's actually, there is a certain kind of coolness to be like, why is everyone getting so freaked out? Like, guys, calm down. Yeah. I would say, though, that um, being able to normalise and being able to keep your head down about stuff is, you know, is to some extent privilege. I mean, mm-hmm. the people I've seen mostly who are like, no, we have absolutely no time for this guy. We're not giving him a chance at all. This is really dangerous dangerous, and we need to stay awake. Stay woke. Stay awake to the threat. They're all people of colour, trans people, LGBT people, Muslims, minorities, feminists. Uh, they're people who really can't afford to engage in any kind of normalisation because that option's just not on the table for them. And it's interesting as well that when, um, you know, in the run-up to the election, I don't know about you guys, but for me personally, everyone I knew almost universally was saying, oh, no, he won't get it, it'll be close, but it'll be fine. The few people I know who were like, nah, nah, he's he's going to win, I think, they were all people of colour. And they were like, no, we've, we've seen this coming for a while. And they're the people who I think are you know, have most to fear, but are perhaps least shocked. Yeah, I do think that is a a bit of a white man's opinion on Twitter, and I'm Mm. sure some white women too, of just being like, guys, he probably won't even enact all this stuff. Well, he's got a chief of staff who's incredibly anti-abortion. He's got already the Mm -hmm. chance to appoint one Supreme Court justice. And, you know, for all that he might be intensely divided from the rest of the GOP, they are all on the side of restricting, you know, overturning Roe versus Wade Mm -hmm. or restricting abortion rights. Like, he's he's pushing on an open door. Sorry, Stephen, number two... 
on your le- ne- uh, next uh, least charity I know, I, I was also going to say, I, I think the interesting thing, so there's actually a surprisingly good uh, Saturday Night Live sketch, it turns out no. they do do them no, occasionally. No, oh. uh, it didn't happen. Where uh, they all watch TV together and Chris Rock and Dave Chappelle are the only two who aren't surprised. I think on the other hand, you know, obviously I didn't think it would happen, Jamel Bowie didn't think it would happen, um, oh god, what's his name, wrote a very good piece, tweets as at five-fifths, uh, The Atlantic didn't think it would happen. I, but but I think then if you are black, you did understand the... Uh, yeah, I could see how theoretically it might turn out that the that white voters might vote in the way they did, mm. and he might be able to southernize is what Bannon had called yeah. it before, yeah, get get northern whites to, to vote in the way that white people in the south did, and that is what happened. Uh, however, I think for a lot of us, because we were so powerful in the primaries, right... Uh, you know, I was was significantly less excited about Hillary than you, but I did enjoy the fact that we got to pick the nominee. Right, we were the central, most influential voting group in that uh, in that primary, and uh, there was always this sense of like, oh, you know, you know, but, but thanks to blacks, you know, we're the reason North Carolina is a marginal, etc., etc. And then it turned out we had hugely underestimated the size and the willingness of white voters to vote to destroy us. Um, I think that's a really interesting thing, because that's the kind of, why don't you have empathy? And you think, well, actually, hang on a minute. I don't, I I, I would like to hear the explanation from a Trump voter about why they don't have any empathy with the minorities who express worries about about Trump, because that that really should flow both ways, I think. And and also the thing is, is like, ultimately... One, the, the more you look at the data, the more the economic anxiety argument yeah. doesn't hold uh, water. Uh, the, other, the, the other thing is, right, is like, one, guess what? There's a lot of economic anxiety for African-Americans and Hispanics. Two, your job's not worth my life. Sorry. Exactly. Like, like, exactly. Like, it's the, the idea that just because you have empathy for someone means you have to agree with everything they yeah. say. I am sure, you know, hurt people, hurt people. I'm sure that a huge majority of people who voted for Donald Trump have been wounded by life. They've been wounded by neoliberalism. They're having a really, really terrible time. That does not give any of them the right to vote for white supremacists, to vote for xenophobes and to vote away women's rights. You know, that's not, people say, oh, well, you're not listening to the the white working class. They, I don't know if you could hear the air quotes there. That's the only way we're allowed to talk about the working class now is to talk about white people. But, um, you know, yeah, the press I, I has think, been listening. Yeah. Well, that's the thing it's I found was really astonishing about it. It was this kind of a sense that, oh, we haven't heard about what, what Trump voters are angry about. And I thought, well, <laughs> then you just haven't been reading um, the hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of pieces. Because yeah. you might, I mean, Chris Arnard, who I think has been really interesting in this election, did criticise, I think, what he called um, something like you know, parachute journalism, what kind of safari journalism, right? So this is the kind of thing where, like, I will go to Ohio and go, oh, it's <laughs> just dreadful business now, there's no shops <laughs> here, uh, and then I will leave again. And I think that is a reasonable criticism. But the, what they're really really wasn't was an in, a, a, an interest in why I think it was 94% of, of African American women voted for Hillary Clinton right there mm-hmm. was no, that is an overwhelming endorsement by a group yep. of people for one candidate and actually no one was curious about that no one wanted to know what the things that they cared about were what was driving them to yeah. vote in that particular way and I think the second the second reason actually to be honest is is intimately linked with that this is one thing I'm only going to say in the safe space of the podcast. It's okay, it's fine, in the, is, um, it's fine in the podcast. You're Nothing allowed bad to happens. have a safe space. There's a large group of white people who don't want to accept the idea that they are capable of racism, mm. right? Uh, who 
you know, yeah, obviously one of my hobbies is I'm racist, I'm sexist, we're all racist and sexist, we all live in a, yeah. in, 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 we, you know, we cannot escape uh, the culture. Lot, but I, but there is, I realised I had underestimated the number of people, including people I would still describe as being to my left, yeah. who who clearly really don't want to acknowledge the idea yeah. that, that they could be capable of, or that people they know could be capable of. Someone, there's a great tweet, and I kind of wanted to write, write, write this up because I can't uh, find it to credit it. Uh, I also can't get the exact quote right, but they kind of said, look, this is partly about a certain type of white leftist who goes, I hate Facebook because it's full of my racist relatives. I, ha- I bite my tongue in Thanksgiving and Christmas. And now I've turned around and said, oh, no, I don't need to go back and explain to these people they shouldn't be racist. What mm-hmm. we need to do is say to those people that they want single payer health care. I mean, I think single payer health care is, is brilliant, obviously. But people who voted for Trump on the same night rejected yep. single payer health care in Colorado. Right. Like we, we have to accept that. The problem was not that we were overly demonstrative about anti-racism being bad. I mean, to be honest, I think electorally that may have been part of the problem. I think that Hillary's uh, lack of popularity did mean she had to run so much as Obama's third term that she Mm -hmm. ran a more explicitly black candidacy almost than Obama, which I think probably did help Trump's strategy. Mm. However, just because that's true, but it doesn't mean that, that she should feel bad about the fact that she ran an explicitly uh, uh, candidacy based around uh, racial justice. So I think there's an element of, oh, maybe it's not so bad, then is people just basically want to pretend that people with suits and ties aren't white supremacists. Yeah, I think that's really fascinating. I think the the place I saw that most clearly was in the reaction to the grab them by the pussy tape, where, you know, we have this conversation in feminist circles about how powerful it means to say, I believe her, which is you just don't innately disbelieve people. And I have problems with that because obviously that doesn't apply to journalists in the same way as it does to when a friend says that to you, right? You have yep. to. But this general, like, what we don't do is we don't start from an explicit place of disbelief about what women say. And this was an election that brought home that even people don't believe him when he says that he, he sexually assaulted someone, right? <laughs> this is the, and really people's ability to just garden away things that are kind of uncomfortable to them and just not not, not look them in the eye and say I'm voting for him despite this thing that he said but the, to, that to, didn't happen didn't ha- I mean that's not really what he said I mean really I mean I don't think that's what he meant you know I, I you know and all that kind of thing happens all the time and it just any all these endless minimizations I thought was it was it was a really terrifying insight into the fact that there is no thing that is so sexist or racist or homophobic or whatever that someone can say that if someone likes that person or wants to be on their tribally on their side, they can't explain it away, right? You mm-hmm. could not. I, that um, I think Jamal Bowie tweeted this story this morning about the mayor in West Virginia who said, oh, "It'd be nice to have a um, proper first lady in the White House now, not an ape in <gasps> yes. heels." And yeah. then when uh, I, I didn't say anything racist, and you're like, "Okay, okay." But- you, what you what do you think racism what is if that's it? not it? People want to believe that they're good people yeah. and good people don't say racist things. So whatever they said, it can't be racist. And, yeah. and the thing is that, it, again, it's about white people's feelings. And the thing is that white people's feelings don't matter on this. It doesn't matter if in your... It doesn't matter whether or not in your heart you feel that people of Muslim faith are suspicious or inhuman that doesn't matter if you've just set fire to a mosque you know you you could not do that you know it's about actions yeah. and about 
words, not about feelings. But that's why I part company as well with the sort of self-flagellation of the, of, of you're all white, you know, metropolitan liberals or whatever, mm. you're more middle class or you're all educated. Or I think Nick Cohen had a pop at you this weekend, like, you know, public school educated women, you know, telling, uh, you know, ex-minors oh, that they Oh, was Laurie that was Did a he? subtweet of? I couldn't work yeah, out. Yeah, linked through to a Laurie piece. His, oh, right, so in his It hilariously linked through to a Laurie piece in which Laurie had then written, like, obviously I acknowledge that I'm privileged in other ways, which was obviously... What did Nick Cohen say? <laughs> This is the part where we get to like the shit talk part. Like, Damn, what, what they say saying. about me? <laughs> <laughs> oh, about this idea. Apparently, he missed the 2012 when everybody had to go through the thing about you know caring about different things and, and the fact that you could be privileged in some ways and mm-hmm. not in others. And we said like the trouble with the left is that you know you get public school educated women talking about straight white men and, and their privilege. And mm-hmm. you know how does that sound to a, an ex minor in a you know coughing up his guts in a flat in in Yorkshire? And the piece it linked through to was a piece about something that you had written, in which you'd explicitly laid out the fact that there were different axes of oppression, right? Yes. And, and then, and, and, so, and therefore you could be eco. I be love privileged how this in... is literally mean girls. We are literally at the mean girls point. Who said point. what about who? And then that's why he's in my burn book. And, but you know what? This is a sign of how I'm growing as a person. <laughs> um, I nearly did a tweet that said, wow, great news, Nick. I hear that like rapists are checking whether or not you've got a degree first now. Um, or, you know, where you went to school. Mm-hmm. No, that's not what happens. Like, I have a lot of great advantages in life, but statistically, I'm much more likely to be sexually assaulted than Nick Cohen. Like, I don't know why that, that is a hard thing for him to understand. That is actually the one group of Trump voters who I do find it relatively easy to... to Let's to just summon. put it out there that I'm sure Nick Cohen didn't vote for Trump. Oh, uh, <laughs> to, to summon compassion. Lucky he's not litigious, so we can say what we like Com- about him. Compa- Unlike wonderful Peter Thiel, who I, I love Peter Thiel. would I love have... to live forever with. Um, yeah. The, yeah, but the one group of people who go to the Trump who aren't, I find it actually relatively easy to summon compassion with, or perhaps it's just an, it's pity and I therefore mistake that for compassion. Because oh, the, the other thing which sort of made me think, oh, well, it will be fine, is uh, I just did think that the gender gap for, for Hillary would be larger mm. than it was. And I think I had clearly underestimated how powerful the baked-in institutions of oppression are mm-hmm. that you could have a situation where so many white women could vote for a man who had boasted about groping them and forcing himself upon them who is going to limit their 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 health care rights their access to to birth control to limit the horizons of their future in so many ways and i just think well, wow i cannot imagine day. hating yourself so much than you mm-hmm. and that is what the weirdly that is the one group of of trump voters for whom there has been no compassion for none of these men saying oh the problem is that women leaned in too much and that black people were a little bit too you know uppity uh they don't really no you know that yeah, group there's of no men compassion for women about... who live with a man who thinks that it's fine to boast about grabbing people yeah. by the pussy yeah, exactly. but that's i think that that's a, a particularly fact i mean there's an andrea dworkin quote which says you know mm. women are the only group who have to what is it sleep with their oppressors yeah um and i think that's where actually gender and race do diverge is that it is possible to live in a, an all-white enclave or an all-black enclave but it's not most people do live in a you know, most white women are married to white men, right? And I think yeah. that's a kind of inextricable thing that you have to understand. It makes me angry. Sorry, this is further in the burn book mm-hmm. scenario. Because of all the people who said, oh my God, I can't believe that women were going to vote with their vaginas and they're just going to vote for Hillary Clinton just because she's a woman. Turns out that was really not, that was really that was wrong. not a thing that happened. Yeah. No one, nobody did that. That is not a worry. We don't have to write, you know, stiff yeah. pieces scolding people about that anymore because not... 
Anyway, we, we're just going to write stiff pieces scolding women for voting against their interests, which, obvi- I mean, obviously, you know, obviously I don't think that it was a, a remotely sensible thing for any woman to vote for Trump. But I do just think, like, I just feel deeply sorry for someone who would do that to themselves. Mm. I, uh, my, my only reaction to that uh, is is both incomprehension and pity. And obviously those women clearly also hate me as much as the, the men who voted for him. But, mm. you know, it is... Uh, it is quite sad. I think the third group. Yes, yes. Um, the third group. We are gonna. This <laughs> We're not gonna this, this we... is what we need more of on the left. It's yeah. focus. Um, the third group are fellow travellers, right? Right wingers who, you know, maybe they're, mm. maybe they're particularly in this country. Maybe they're not. You know, they might not be into the the suppression of women's rights or or the white supremacy, although some of them are. But you know, it's the cost of doing business. You know, if a, a couple of, of 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 women need to not be able to get the abortion they need in a life that's situation, worth it for a tax cut. That's yeah. worth it for a tax cut. That's you know the cost of a US UK trade deal. You know, it's, Absolutely, you, know, it's, you could apply that to the whole of the G- well, all with notable exceptions like John McCain and um, and the Bushes, for example. That is almost the bargain that the GOP struck. Right? Mm. They said it's not. We don't want Henry Clinton anything was so much that and actually this is a really worrying thing going forward what you know what shit won't they eat from from president trump given what they mm-hmm. ate during the primaries this is very sweary That's, this podcast this i really is, um, i really bust the uh, clean i actually here. really disagree on this point actually um from what i've seen in you know i took quite a bit of time because i found it so interesting to sit down with moderate conservatives particularly at the republican convention because it was like the party at the end of the world like that Loads of lobbyists hadn't turned up, loads of, you know, and this is not like the Labour Party conference, no, this is like a massive, glitzy, overcated, you know, everything. This is where they come every four years. I think under Corbyn you'll find that the Labour Party (laughs) conference is extremely glitzy now. Amazing. (laughs) Loads of confetti raining the ceiling, huge balloons. Balloons. Oh, God. Anyway, but they were... I I met nobody more depressed at the Republican convention than um, the moderate conservatives. But on the other hand... They're leaders, I guess, right? Marco Rubio, Ted Cruz, Chris Christie. I was going to say, on the other hand, it's... um, those people also have a natural instinct to kowtow to authority, and now he's actually in power. It will be, you know, that your your average moderate conservative, conservative, even whilst you know in the primary season their sense of decency may well have steered them away to, away from that, and you know they were as horrified as anyone I met to see this being done in their name. Now that he's president. They may well find their, you know, they're lacking that anti-authoritarian gene. I mean, that's why they're that's why they're conservatives. Like, that's what I mean. The, the, the thing that really worries me is if you are looking at this purely from a pragmatic point of view. If you're Trump, what do you need in order to consolidate your power and get things that you want done? You mm. needed a national emergency. In the same way, I remember living through the Bush years and the way that the Iraq War was framed as there's this existential threat from Islamic yep. terrorism. And therefore, we need to have Guantanamo Bay in order to deal with that. We need mm-hmm. to be able to torture people to deal with that. And I just think, what's the thing that's going to be the excuse for all the terrible rolling back of civil liberties? And no doubt, I mean, from what Donald Trump said in the campaign, he wants to you know, torture the families of suspected jihadis that they want to do. Anyway, on that depressing note, Laurie, um, we must let you go. Um, but please come oh, back thanks. and join us soon if there is a podcast. Yes. In the <laughs> Thank future. Thank you very much. <laughs> Hopefully. Hi, I'm Caroline. And I'm Anna. And together we host the New Statesman's pop culture podcast, Seriously. If this sounds like something you'd be interested in, you can get this episode and everything else we've done on newstatesman.com forward slash S-R-S-L-Y.
now it's time to go down the line to the lobby with George. Hi, Stephen. Hi, George. So as he has increasingly done in recent weeks, Jeremy Corbyn went on Brexit at today's PMQs, albeit by the slightly bizarre route of the Chagos Islanders. And not only does he um, attack the government more often now, having once refused to mention Ian Duncan Smith's resignation uh, when it happened, uh, he now appears to quite enjoy it. Uh, People's question time is is a distant memory. And... Jeremy Corbyn seems to quite enjoy uh, Punch and Judy politics, parliamentary knockabout now. Um, so, for instance, he, while Boris Johnson and, and Theresa May were speaking on the front bench, he said, oh, the foreign secretary's whispering. Can we all please hear his advice? Um, so he is, he is improving and it's notable that it's very much by adopting uh, an old politics approach rather than uh, the new politics. Um, yeah, he, he now, it feels to me like he wins more often than not now. Um, which may just be the memory cheating. But part of that is that Theresa May is less uh, quick on her feet. Um, overall, uh, it hasn't been a great week for, for them or for her operation. They have this weird, they have this time story that they, they sort of failed to kill and they actually almost aggravated in their slightly odd denial. Why Why is Downing Street so brittle? Yes, I mean, I think it's partly because they are consumed with the task, as any government would be, of, of Brexit. And, and Theresa May is someone who believes in mastering all the details, looking at all the angles before she makes her decision. She's quite different to, to David Cameron in that regard, who often did give a running commentary. And in many ways, what we got on the EU renegotiation ended up being a bit of a, a running commentary. Uh, Theresa May's style is is much more show don't don't tell uh, that's that worked fine for her at the at the home office but it, it it's a lot tougher when you are dealing with the the biggest task any government's faced since 1945 which is brexit and the problem for the government with the the leaked memo is that they can dismiss it of the view as the view of deloitte um, but it's not just deloitte who are saying this uh the civil service ministers MPs are all concerned at the lack of detail and and clarity on Brexit. And that's why it will become increasingly hard for Theresa May, when asked what her plan is, to say our plan is to get the best deal. Um, Because to many MPs, including someone on her own side, that looks just like wishful thinking. Yeah, in terms of the complaints about uh... Downing Street side. Obviously, it was explosive because it was on paper, but those felt like the fairly everyday things you'd ex- people are saying all the time, didn't they? Yes, indeed. And I mean, this is why I think Theresa May is going to have to give more detail fairly soon. A lot of the Tory Remainers, people like Nikki Morgan and Anna Subri, have said they won't vote down Article 50, they won't seek to amend any legislation that comes forward but only on the condition that they get more detail. And then, of course, there will be further parliamentary skirmishes ahead when the Great Repeal Bill is published in in the spring. Uh, Now, Labour has made it clearer than ever in John McDonnell's speech this week that it it accepts Brexit. In fact, it believes we should all be more positive about it. But it still intends to negotiate, to, uh, to amend any legislation in line with its key negotiating demands. And at some point, it feels as if there could be parliamentary breaking point this will come to a head 
um, Theresa May is faced with a choice of either uh, reversing direction, changing her strategy, or calling an early general election. Which one do you think is more likely of the two? I'd say an early general election because I think she has been always mindful of the need to keep the Brexiteers on side um, because two-thirds of the, the Tory party, although the majority of MPs were officially for Remain, um, a former minister said to me once, you know, two-thirds in their hearts are leavers. And she doesn't have her own mandate. So effectively, the referendum has become a de facto mandate for her. Her legitimacy derives from Lee's victory and being the one who picks up the pieces. And then, of course, most Tory activists, who Theresa May is far more mindful of than David Cameron and, and George Osborne were, were also Brexiteers. And so if it looks as if Parliament's going to force her towards a soft Brexit, um, then I think she will go for an election um, and try and win a mandate for, for hard Brexit. Although all of this, of course, is, is confused by the fact it's still not clear what Brexit we, we are heading for. I mean, the signals from May suggest certainly that we're leaving the single market, most likely that we're leaving the, the customs union. But it's also clear that privately, uh, Philip Hammond uh, and his allies are feeling increasingly bullish about uh, the negotiations. You can see people like uh, Liam Fox fear they're losing fear they're losing the argument there um and it's this ambiguity which explains precisely why parliament is so desperate for some clarity right well we see whether that clarity emerges cool fact a crocodile can't stick out its tongue also you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states united healthcare short-term insurance plans underwritten by golden rule insurance company offer flexible budget-friendly coverage for you learn more at uh1.com this is a manhattan-bound b express train the next stop is Grand Street. Mind the gap. Hi, I'm Stephanie. And I'm John. And we host Skylines, the city metric podcast, where every two weeks we talk about cities, maps, and the human world. Whether the Olympics are good for cities, what it's like to be a woman in a city. And we've had guests like Lauren Elkin, Caroline Criado Perez, and Neil Codlin, the keyboard player from Suede, because I'm nearly cool now. Tune in on iTunes or on Acast. Check it out. And now for a segment called You Ask Us. Uh, you can ask us, for example, on Twitter at Helen Lewis, that's Stephen KB, or on Stephen's Facebook page. My Facebook page. Or if you're signed up to his morning briefing email, which you should be because it's great. Although weirdly centre aligned. It wasn't centre aligned today, was it? Yeah. But today I literally spent 15 minutes testing it on about eight different emails. Oh, no, but... no, no, it wasn't. It was justified today. That's fine. I, pref- I would prefer it ragged left, but we can discuss this later. Um... Anyway, the, the point is, the point is, uh, I have a question, which is, should Nigel Farage, should we take advantage of Nigel Farage's unique bromance with the Donald in order to use him as a, an envoy between the UK government and the US government? Um... I'm worried this isn't going to be a very discursive you ask us. Because uh, we're just both going to go, this is no, no. Let me just say no. But So I'm going to say no, but I will... In, so if I'm set up, obviously, one reason, and I think one of the things that a lot of people don't quite seem to have got about the far right, the nativist right, whatever you want to call these people, right, is they're not 
our friends, right? Like they're not like a more extreme version of of David of, right, of David Cameron, right? They're not like it's not like you go like David Cameron, John Redwood, and eventually you hit Nigel Farage, right? Um, they are a different type of politics, right? When you see that um, with the reaction to, and actually Hugo Rifkind, in of all places, the Spectator, you know, put his finger on it. Their reaction to the court judgment, right? The Article Fifty One. The Article Fifty One. Court says, actually, legislature, not the executive, has to pull the trigger on that. It doesn't go their way. And their thing is, we need to replace the judges, right? These are people, and this is the thing that a lot of people were saying, but we kind of, I think, were not foregrounding enough, was, yeah, the Republicans had become more anti-democratic, right? Yeah, yeah. and in the sense that conservatives have, by definition, almost respect for institutions, right? Mm. I think that's, I suppose that's the difference. Whereas it turns out that some of those really ardent breaks of tears, there's no, there's nothing that they wouldn't sacrifice. If you had to say the economy will have to take a huge hit, but we'll get Brexit, they'd junk that despite having been, you know, preaching austerity and preaching balanced budgets or whatever for years. Yeah, and the thing is, is these people don't really like democracy. They just like it when it gives them the the outcome they want if they win and take control of a country they will they will not let go voluntarily right you know they are they are not you know fundamentally the 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 there are two divisions in politics and people forget a lot of the time one is the you know obviously some people don't like the word liberal but the tolerant intolerant divide and the other is the would you do you surrender power willingly after you're defeated right and it's very easy to take that for granted in a country like Britain where people have done for a very long time. But but lots of places don't, and lots of politicians don't really want to. Well, and, Vladimir Putin being a classic example, it's yeah. like, well, I'll spend a couple of years as Prime Minister. No, no, I think I'll actually, now I'll be, I'll be President again. Yeah. Um, and and Farage, yeah, Farage is not the buddy of everyone in Britain. He's the buddy of, of people who are part of his narrow vision of, of what this country should be like. He doesn't have the best interests of the Conservative government, let alone all of our citizens. The other reason why we shouldn't do it is people, a lot of uh, people, including some of the right-wingers I respect, although actually most of the right-wingers who I respect do understand the scale of of the Trump problem. Um, yeah, but there are people talking about, oh, this is going to be like Thatcher and Reagan. Yeah, Ronald Reagan and Margaret Thatcher agreed that the two pressing threats to the world were climate change, because we've forgotten it used not to be fashionable for the right to pretend climate change wasn't happening, um, and the Soviet Union. In terms of what I regard, and to, weirdly on this I agree with Theresa May, uh, the two threats to our security, Vladimir Putin and climate change, Donald Trump is mates with one and he denies the existence of the other, right? Like, the, this, the, like the, the, the question for British foreign policy is not, oh, how do we work with this guy? How do we make a deal with this? It's like, how do we deal with the fact that the leader of the largest uh, and most powerful democracy in the world doesn't really like democracy, likes autocracy at home and likes autocracy abroad? Like, how do we keep ourselves safe and free in that situation? I have another objection to Nigel Farage being used as a go-between. Is there any evidence that Nigel Farage would be any good at that? This is the thing I find really fascinating. Right, he went to the, when he was just after Brexit. He went to the European Parliament. And he gave this grim speech where he's like, "None of you have ever had a proper job in your lives," and you were just like, "I'm not being funny, Nigel, Nigel." But going on the question time, is that a proper job? Because actually, that's all you've done for the last twenty odd years. I, you know, I just. 
I, I, that, one of the things that most gets my goat about that generation of Eurosceptics is that they have been able to fund all of their activity by essentially taking my money to be an MEP and then not doing any of the scrutiny of European legislation that is part of that job, right? They've just basically been parasites of, of the EU that they claim to despise. And, and I... And I I don't see what qualifications... Well, I mean, Nigel Farage is undoubtedly an incredibly talented orator. He's undoubtedly very good at going on question time and, and saying mean things about immigrants in a way that appeals to I see, you know, 15% of the country. But what is the evidence that he would be of any use whatsoever about negotiating like car export tariffs? Right, I just don't know what he would do. Also, the other thing I think is really fascinating about that picture of them in front of the gold lift. Someone from America said, "You know that none of us over here have, have noticed this, right? This is just not a, a thing. It just sounds much more like basically what happened. How that whole thing went down was that Nigel Farage and his sort of weird stag party hung around the lobby in the hope of meeting the Donald. Right? They weren't in Donald Trump's apartment. They were." You know, he like came down to see them, and I don't know whether or not they then subsequently had some long intimate power. This is how Nigel Farage represents it, certainly, but it doesn't really sound like he would be that much use. Yeah, I mean, he did like campaign for him, and there's you know they did rallies together. Um, but what about that says that he can of any of Britain's diplomatic goals? Britain's diplomatic goals are not getting Donald Trump elected or nor providing, you know, good warm-up acts at Donald Trump rallies. Don, you know, Britain's economic interests now are about securing a, a good, you know, good trade deals or, you know, getting Donald Trump to recommit to NATO, right? Yeah. What, what is the evidence that, that Nigel Farage is going to be really helpful there? Yeah, none, none at all. You're right. He's also probably bad at the job as well as the fact that the job is not what a lot of people on the right seem to envisage it. To be. I mean, what we need now, really, is people who are really, really dull, but really, really good at fine details, right? We need reams and reams of trade negotiators and lawyers. That's what we need. And we need somebody who is a really great negotiator. And Actually, maybe we need to develop time travel. And and in some, some might say that we need to not do this catastrophic thing. But I don't know. I just feel like actually somebody like Keir Starmer, I just think you want you want a lawyer, right? You want somebody who is really great at spotting the fine details. You know, somebody who, who pays attention to stuff. And Nigel Farage is not an attention... He's not a details man, is he? So in answer to your question... No. No. No, it's a terrible idea. It, in another way, it does cheer me up, though. This is the thing about the sort of, like, gallows humour, that I just think, well, God, how much I strongly reacted with horror to that picture of them in the lift. Imagine how Theresa May felt when she saw it. I also find it oddly comforting, right? We've had an election, which may well mean the end of American democracy, which has drastically reduced all of our chances of dying. No, oh, hang on a old. minute. It's increased our chances no, of dying oh, old. dying, dying old, right, um, okay. Or at least older, <laughs> if we're already old. Um, and there are a number of senior people in the Conservative Party who think that... This means that we're going to get a great trade deal. There's just something oddly engaging about it. Like, the level of stupid you have to be. Don't you to... sort of... I imagine Liam Fox is like that dog in the, you know, I'm fine cartoon with <laughs> yeah. everything on fire around him and there's Liam Fox going like, this is great news for the butter trade. Yeah. <laughs> just flames licking it, behind him. Because the thing is, it's not like... The, 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 one of the interesting differences between Donald Trump and the, the nativist right in Europe, right... Is that that generation of the right in Europe, Le Pen, um, Herfer, 
another one who I've forgotten the name of. Geert Wilders? Yeah, their whole thing is, look, I go on TV and I look so much more reasonable than the the right-wingers of the 80s and 90s, and people go, oh, maybe they're not so bad. That is their whole thing. Donald Trump doesn't go on TV and try to look reasonable. He's literally, like, there is something oddly engaging about the fact that... that, that What you see is what you get. Yeah, he's basically wandering around going... You know what? I like Putin. I don't like democratic norms. I don't like black Americans. And a large chunk of of people on the right are going, so what I'm hearing is you want to rebuild the special relationship and we can do a trade deal. And a large chunk of the left is going, ah, so what you mean is you like black people, you just want health care. And it's just like, in in, in a time of complete awfulness, I just find it oddly engaging that there are people who are... are... Those people are happier than us, though. Don't don't mock them. Wow. They still have optimism left. You really should call us, you bum us out. (laughs) Um, Um, Well, um, if anyone else would like to ask us questions that we can answer with either one-word answers or extremely long digressions about how much there are people in the cabinet we think are stupid, uh, then do uh, tweet us or contact Stephen on Facebook. You've been listening to the New Statesman podcast, presented by Helen Lewis and me, Stephen Bush, and produced by India Bork. You can find us every week at newstatesman.com forward slash podcast or on iTunes. Our theme music is Devil with the Devil by the Underscore Orchestra, licensed under Creative Commons. When we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Trust in politics is broken. So can we get UK politics working again? That was the last time we were happy. 2012. I'm Beth Rigby, Sky's political editor. Join me every week with Labour's Jess Phillips and Conservative peer Ruth Davidson for some electoral dysfunction. This idea of nuance has completely left politics. Together, we'll focus on the policies that could deliver political satisfaction. Follow electoral dysfunction wherever you get your podcasts.